0: Let's see, tonight's subject is English. And I was gonna say, fortunately, I will not mispronounce anything, but then I realized that's not true. <laughs> so I will apologize again for mispronouncing all of the English. Um, English is extraordinary. I mean, even in the extraordinary history of languages, English is extraordinary. Right now it is it is the lingua franca of the world, and this is the first time we've had a language that could be considered a worldwide lingua franca. Of course, a lot of this has to do with technology that had never been able to exist before. But it exists now for the first time in history and it is without doubt English. It is the language of commerce and science and law um, and, and travel. It's a lingua franca in Europe, even though no one in Europe has it as an official language. The European Union is one of the main languages. Um, again, e- weirdly, even though none of the European language, none of the European Union members have English as their main language, uh, it's, the, it's the language of science in China. Even though in China they have plenty of really, really skilled scientists and excellent mathematicians, um, but if you want to do serious international research, the language is science. I mean, language is English. Well, English and mathematics. So uh, it's that combination. So it's an extraordinary history. What's even more interesting, I think, and we'll talk about this at at length, is the fact that English is a complete and total catastrophe of a language. (laughs) I mean, rarely in history has there ever been such a total mess uh, 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 that that has sort of spread and done anything. We'll look at examples of this, because really, English English is a catastrophically uh, messed up language in many, many ways. But its history will help, hopefully, uh, uh, illuminate why English is such a wreck. And so many of the things you've probably struggled with in English will now become clear to you because really English is four or five languages sort of mished together. Um, but the timeline for English really starts about 450 AD in Britain, Britain being the home of the English language. Now, weirdly, you can go back much further. You know, Celtic was around, other, other indigenous languages were around in the British Isles before. The Anglo-Saxons show up in 450 AD, of course. Um, But those were, were pretty systematically displaced. We'll see that happen. But even more interesting is the Romans were there for a couple of centuries. And in France, and in Italy, and Spain, all over the place, where the Romans went, they left their language, which then sort of broke off and became the Romance languages, or at least heavily influenced the languages of the places they had conquered. In Britain, not so much. The Romans left, and when they left, that was sort of it. Bye-bye, end of Latin. We're not interested anymore. And it's still not, it's still not clear, by the way, why this would be. There's no, no one, why so little Latin was taken up in the near term. In any case, so, off, off go the Romans, goodbye, you know, thanks for conquering us. Um, and in come, very immediately thereafter, um, in, in come the Angles, the Saxons, uh, and as I said, you know, their various cousins. Um, the, 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 they bring in sort of old German, uh, West German dialect. Um, and this really sweeps quickly uh, in, into the previous Roman areas. Um, and we're not sure why. One speculation is it may have been coincident with the bubonic plague. And so the plague was wiping out population centers so the native languages sort of fall off. The Anglo-Saxons came as conquerors, but also as settlers. And so they didn't you know, come rule from afar or anything. They came, they settled, they created a population base. And, and pretty rapidly, um, displaced many of the native languages, although of course things Cornish and Welsh you know, continue on just fine for, you know, till today. But, the, but they, the Anglo-Saxon gets settled pretty quickly. Um, and then later, about 790, the Danes show up, the Vikings. Um, first they came as raiders and smashers and stealers, but then, then they also started to settle <coughs> They, they intermarry, and this really creates what is called Old English. Now, now we can't read Old English. This is what Beowulf is written in. Um, so, if you if you look at that, the little section of Beowulf there, what we gardena in gardagum," right? Which is no one, by the way, knows how to translate that "what." Here it's translated as "listen," or "so," or "thus," or Wow, but uh, it's not, you know, how you want to translate that, but it's, you know, it's, listen, we of the Spear Danes in the days of yore. Right. I mean, the, nothing jumps out of there except for we, right? <laughs> We've got the we, uh, uh, but, but not a lot else. It makes sense to us. And this was written in about uh, 850 to 1000, the provenance of, of the Beowulf manuscript is not totally clear, but it gives you a good sense of the kind of old English dialect that was being spoken in, in much of the area of the British Isles. Not all of it, of course, again, Cornish, Welsh, Gaelic, of, uh, you know, of course, still, still very popular. Um, but this was the literary language. This was the prime written language in that, in, in that region. And it's really beginning to develop. So you know, Beowulf is a major poem. There's other chronicles that are being kept. There's some histories that are being written. And so, right, here we have it. Anglo-Saxon, the roots of English. Well, then the Norman conquest happens, right? 1066. And what what this does is it sort of cuts the top off of uh, Old English. Because now the language of literacy, the language of of ruling, is going to be Norman French, um, which is a dialect of, of French. And so the king and the king's court speak, of course, Norman French. The people who live around the court and the servants speak Anglo-Saxon but need to learn French if they want to get ahead in the world. And so French becomes sort of like English is today. It's the language you want to learn if you want to prosper. And it dominates writing. So it takes over almost every, all the documents, Anglo-Saxon sort of drop away immediately, and all the documents start getting picked up in, in French. So the language of the court records, and the histories, and the chronicles transfer to French or Latin. Because of course, they brought a bunch of Latin speakers with them. The Latin guys had actually shown up a little bit earlier, but this is where the big influence comes in. And so the law is in Latin, the court is in Norman French, Uh, and the people speak some version of Anglo-Saxon, or all over England, of course, all the other dialects. So what do you do if you're the ruling French, and you come into a country that speaks not just Anglo-Saxon, as one of the main ones where your power base is around London, um, but, you know, again, Cornish and Welsh and Scottish and these other other dialects. But what the Norman French did is encourage them to learn anglo saxon or Old English, because they thought that would reduce the linguistic diversity and the chance of people to, to sort of coordinate themselves around linguistic groups to, ref, to resist the Norman-French conquest. Why didn't they want them to learn French? Ah, French is the language of the ruling class. So they did not want to dilute in some ways their authority so this, this is, if you know French, it's your sort of ticket to ride. So we wanna keep those natives down and we wanna transport our rulers and our people and the people that we've trained domestically to speak French as servants and retainers and then sort of get everybody else to pick this up. So weirdly, the Norman French also spread the Old English slash Anglo-Saxon um, to, to more areas than it had been before. And also, of course, Latin just to make it more confusing. Um, So we get about a couple hundred years of this and then you get um, Norman invasion to the 1400s, really 1355, but you have a couple of things. You have the death of French. Now this is the Hundred Years' War, um, which really by the end of it had, had given the whole French ruling elite a very bad name and anything associated with France was considered sort of un-English. It's a, you consider it as a sort of nascent rise of nationalism, but if you fight the French for long enough, eventually you decide you don't like them, right? Uh, and, as, and as far as I can tell, the, uh, England still doesn't like French French to this day, the French. So uh, this big battle runs for, for you know, a century, a hundred years war, and by the end of it has really undercut the power of the ruling elite and displaced them. And uh, native rulers who speak um, Old English come to the fore but now we would call this I guess middle English so but but notice what's happened is you've had 300 years ish of an influence of Norman French as your literary language on a substrate of Old English Anglo-Saxon which rises up and produces middle English which is very different, in fact, radically different. I don't need to have a translation for the selection I have of Chaucer here. Chaucer, 1350 to 1400, so he's right at the end of the Hundred Years' War, up, up, to, the, up, up to the end of the uh, 1400, when it was finished. So if we read that, it says, Juan that operal with his shower suit the root of, Ma- of March hath perceded to the root and bathed every vein in switch liquor of which vertu engendered is the fluor. Right? When that April with his showers, sweet showers, uh, the drought of March hath parched to the root and bathed every vine in sweet liquor of the virtue engendered is the flower. So, you know, April showers bring May flowers, essentially, (laughs) sum that up. Now, the spelling's a bit difficult. We don't use the word suit or root like that very much anymore. Um, But basically, once you get used to the spelling changes, Um, and some of the word usage, you can read Chaucer fairly easily. A couple of days of reading through the Canterbury Tales and you'll be up to speed. Particularly if you read it out loud. It's easier to hear often than it is to see on the page. So that is in 400 years. So it's a a, a fair span of time, but it's a pretty huge change from the old English where we can't hardly read a word. Um, if, if If you know German or Dutch or Icelandic, and English and some French, you can sort of piece your way through Beowulf. Otherwise, it's, it doesn't make any sense in English. But now with Chaucer, we start getting texts that we can read today. We don't need them to be translated. It's nice sometimes, some difficult phrases, but it's legible. So this is one, the French influence wanes, local uh, regional dialects come to the fore. Second thing, this is, this is hugely important, is Caxton and the printing press. Caxton is sort of generally credited as the first guy, but it's, it's basically the London printing establishment. Because before you get printing presses, orthography, how things are presented on the page, how things are spelled, well, how the letters look, is not stabilized. Spelling is not stabilized. In fact, spelling is not stabilized today in English. Um, the, you know, the, uh, grammar isn't stabilized. Nothing is really fixed. And so the guys who were the printers and the typesetters weren't just you know, getting a, a, a document, and putting letters in, they were translating it into the language they thought would be most legible to the people who read their paper. And because, of course, London is what it's all about, the, the London dialect of Middle English became the language. This is the roots of what we understand as English today, was the typesetters decided in London you know, in, in, in the 15th century. This is where it comes from. And so this was hugely important to begin standardizing. it. <coughs> Once you have standardization, you also massively increase literacy. It, it's hard for us to imagine, but it would be as if we drove from here to Seattle, and they spoke something similar to our English, but and they wrote something similar, but it was really hard. But if you got to Portland, you might not even be able to read it. And if you got to Denver, you almost certainly wouldn't be able to read it, but you could probably communicate with some struggle. But everybody would say they spoke Middle English. That's the sort of dramatic diversity there would be in a language before you get the printing press. The printing press starts to stabilize this. Mass publication, mass readership, standardization. We tend to look at mechanical standardization bad. Well, in some cases, good. I think in this case, potentially good. Um, And then you get a third and crucial element. Um, You get the founding of Oxford and Cambridge. Now this is important because Oxford and Cambridge are primarily taught and and the education is designed around the classics, this is the um, rise of humanism. And so lots and lots of Latin and some Greek, later lots of Latin and Greek. Now, this wouldn't have mattered so much. There's a few, there's a chair, a couple of chairs up here for people if you want. Any other chairs? Chair over here, y'all. Yeah. Um, this wouldn't matter so much uh, except for the most literate people in England for the next several hundred years will almost by definition have to know Latin, will almost certainly know Latin, and probably know Greek. And so their version of English, and they're the ones that are writing lots and lots of the things people might want to read, is heavily influenced by Latin and Greek. So weirdly, even though the Romans had conquered and occupied England for several hundred years, most of the influence of Latin and pretty much all of the influence of Greek comes more than a thousand years later. Right? That's when Latin and Greek really comes into the language. Um, and this, of course, accelerates d- during the 16th and 17th century when you get the Renaissance. The Renaissance humanism translation all kicks off, starts flowing from Italy and, 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 the, and the continent over to the island. People think this is great. Um, but, but when I t- gave the Greek lecture, I said, here's a sentence in Greek for you. The European economic crisis is a catastrophe. There's an entirely Greek sentence, European Economic Crisis Catastrophe. Prior to about the 16th century, and really even later than that, it would make, that those words did not exist in the English language. They're not in middle, language, middle English. Some of them started being used vaguely in the 1500s. Most of them aren't used until the middle of the 1600s for the first time. And certainly not in general use until later than that when you get things like Hobbes' Leviathan, these sorts of works, where the Latin and Greek education has started to bring vocabulary in that did did not exist in the Anglo-Saxon world. And so you get this weird mix where you have Norman French, uh, straight up Anglo-Saxon, and then this slow but steady importation of Latin and Greek into the language. Um, but but like I said, very late. So again, you have the 16th and 17th centuries um, where you have the kickoff of humanism, the Renaissance, and the Enlightenment all you know sort of sort of start rolling. And importantly, um, the beginnings, which will really roll in, in, in the 7th, 18th century, of empire, economic expansion, and empire. One of the astounding things that happened, and this was not very well planned, was Britain, the small insignificant country that everybody thought was silly, slowly started to expand and form colonies and trading arrangements all over the world. This was was sort of piecemeal. The government didn't even do a lot of it, private corporations did a lot of it. Um, And English begins to spread. And as it spreads, it also begins to import. Even more foreign influences. Tobacco, the word, right? Where do you get tobacco from? You get it from the Americas. And in some places, like in America, the spreading is done by colonization. We settled people. In some places, like India, actually there never were any British people in India. This is one of these astounding facts. There's just a teeny tiny, just a few thousand uh, English speakers in India for most of the history of of the East India Corporation. But of course, it becomes the language of government and influence and, and power, and so everybody wants to learn English. And again, like the Norman French for a while, the British government actively discouraged people from learning English. For one reason that the East India Company was not all that interested in the missionaries, because the missionaries tend to stir up the natives. It did not want the natives stirred up. The Hindus weren't really sure what this one god stuff was all about, but they were certain they didn't want any part of it, right? And, and this sort of, they didn't want the, the sectarian violence with Islam to be kicked. You know, just let's everybody just be calm. Arguing about religion in India is a bad way to go. Um, and so they really were interested in encouraging people to acquire English for, for a while. But then they switched their tactics, and all of a sudden, boom, we're off and running. Here we go. Um, and, of course, so today, one of the largest Indian-speaking populations in the, or English-speaking populations in the world is in the subcontinent of India. And some of the great living writers in the English language, by the way, right? where, where the action really is in English literature for the last decade, couple of decades, really, a lot of it has come from uh, the subcontinent. There's there great writing going on there in the English language. Um, and so you get this weird, unplanned spread uh, of English to Americas, um, India, Australia, New Zealand. Like I, I, said, I always imagine that a, a some future archaeologist digging up English language artifacts all over the place and trying to figure out, now, how does this happen? You know, it, I think it would just blow their minds. It would be difficult to figure out, I think, retrospectively. Um, so just as the empire starts taking off, you get another, and this is crucial, you get the scientific revolution is going on. Enlightenment, if you want to call it, but really a scientific revolution. So that the Latin and Greek language that is the language of science starts to spread everywhere. And the language it's most prominently spread in becomes English, both because of economic dominance and because of things like the founding of the Royal Society uh, in London. These sorts of, of associations really press the language of science to be a mix of Latin Greek, and English. It's a a strange amalgam, and and math, of course, you gotta have your math. Um, And so, while it is becoming the economic language, it's also becoming the scientific language, and this is overlapping on this vast spread as a global language. Notice those things don't have to go together. You can have Rome spread very rapidly, the Roman power uh, or language spread rapidly, primarily because of military domination, right? They did, not necessarily great scientists, they said them, this themselves. I mean, they, they were pretty good, but they weren't world-beating in, in, in their science at the time. Um, economic power, the Phoenicians were hugely uh, rich, as were the Egyptians. They didn't really spread their language. The Egyptians, through economic power, the Phoenicians influenced people with theirs. Greeks very economically or scientifically advanced for their age, but it's not clear that they spread the language through science. They spread, it seems, more other cultural influences and then through geographic issues. So the notion that simultaneously we had three forces spread in language, uh, I think is part of the reason it spread so quickly and became so dominant. And then finally sort of rushing up till today, I know I'm covering a lot of ground quickly here, but. Uh, um, you get to sort of even the pre-war world, but post-World War II world, and uh, not England is not dominant anymore, but the United States is. And we're militarily dominant, we're economically dominant, but probably most importantly for the spread of language, we become culturally dominant. If you want to see a movie, you want to see an American movie. If you want to see a TV show, you want to see an American TV show. And if you want to know why this is, Go back in the 50s and 60s and look at major American films, and then look at major Italian film, a major Tunisian film, a major. Our technology our, was just, just totally, wildly outstripped them. We knew how to make films, more or less. The rest of the world did it. I mean, it, it, it's sort of, it, it's, it's crazy. They had good writers, they had good thinkers, they had good everything else, but they did not have the infrastructure or the technology. And so just the sheer quality of what we were producing, plus the the glow of America as as sort of the world-dominant power, had this immense cultural impact. Uh, There's there's a documentary a friend of mine uh, turned me on to on on synthesizers in Germany, um, and sort of the coming of the electronic music revolution. And it was all the guys who were sort of young in post-war Germany, and they said, because of the GIs and because of American uh, influence, Every club, every radio station, every record you could buy was either American music, R&B, rock and roll, or copies of American music, R&B and rock and roll. And they said at first, they thought, great, we're going to do this. And then they just realized, well, this has absolutely nothing to do with us. It's, just, it's, just, it's not our history. It's not our culture. It's not our technology. We just, I mean, we're not against it. It's fine, but it's not us. But it it was the clearly most powerful, most dominant cultural force all over the world in weird things like, you know, rock and roll being played everywhere, um, all over. Jazz, the spread of jazz even in the pre-war, much less the post-war world, right, came to Europe uh, and other parts of the world just like like a tidal wave. Nobody, I mean, it, it, you can read the documentary of, of, you know, writers, artists, musicians going into clubs in Berlin or Paris in, um, you know, 19-teens, 1920, and just being blown away. Some of them said, oh, this is, this is just subhuman, horrible, uh, uh, sensual, mind-destroying, you know, ah, what is this jazz? We hate it. Or saying, wow, this is human liberation set to a danceable beat. Right, but the response was strong, but everybody said the same thing. This is American music. This is, this is not us. This is from this other world. Right? Actually, it's African-American music, of course, but, uh, you know, but that's part of America, too. And, and you can even see this today because if you go anywhere in the world today, everybody raps. Rap music, hip-hop has absolutely taken over the world, for good or ill. Um, But it it, it is, where did this come from? It comes from the African American community. Huge cultural influence. We didn't wander around the world saying, listen to African American music, listen to hip hop, listen to rap or jazz or rock and roll or we'll shoot you. We just couldn't hardly ship it out to them fast enough. Right? And so this is extraordinary cultural outpouring of, of, of music, movies, television shows. Most popular show I believe in the history of television, at least for a long time, was Baywatch. Because it was because it was one of the first shows that was licensed in China, apparently. And so you know, a billion Chinese turn on your show, and they went, wow. Let's move to there. Right? This is a sort of, you know, this idea. Not, not necessarily a particularly accurate representation of our world, uh, but the history of of not particularly accurate representations of foreign countries is really pretty pretty vast, and this is just another chapter in that. And so this cultural outflow went along with military dominance, economic dominance, scientific language of science. Uh, and has this is where we are today. You can travel almost anywhere in the world, not speak a word of any other language, and you can get by because you speak English. Now... Whether that's good or not, I don't know. But I think it doesn't make us happily complacent because we think, well, we'll make those other people learn something. We don't have to. Um, but, it is, but it is extraordinary. And, and never has it been so world-spanning. Um, so that's where we are. But, but what's strange about this is how bizarre our language is. This is a strange... Weird, wacky, messed up language. Oh, I forgot to do the King James Bible there, 1611. Can't can't forget to mention this because that is the English that we have, is the King James Bible. For most people, for the last 400 years in English, the King James Bible was the first thing you read and potentially the last thing you read. And you certainly heard it all of the time. It it was, it's what it meant to be literate in English. And and, uh, people have commented on how well people used to write, even poorly educated people. It's almost entirely because they were just copying what they had heard and read, which was the King James Bible, which is beautifully, beautifully rendered. It really is a remarkable text. Um, So here's just the, the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form, and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, and the light was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. It's English. 1611, boom, there it is. This, this, is, this is when English gets set for us. One of the reasons it's so powerful, also, by the way, is it has very few Latin and Greek words in it. And there are writers, Tolkien famously amongst them, by the way, who said that the the more Anglo-Saxon words you use, the better your writing in English. That the power of your writing will be derived from your connection with the Anglo-Saxon, which is generally, if available, stronger. And we'll talk about why that might be. Um, But so this, this brings us up to today. Now... Through all of this history, world spanning travel, importation of language and words, sort of amalgamation of Greek and Latin and French and Anglo-Saxon. By the way, Anglo-Saxon is actually Dan- Danish, Old Danish, and all this. We'll talk about this in German, Old German. Not like one language, there's like a bunch. English has never been standardized. There's been never been like a government committee that said, all right, this is how you speak English. Now this has happened in almost every modern country. At some point, a committee has sat down and said, right, we've got to make this make sense. And we're going to have a panel of people. And they're going to get the spelling worked out. And they're going to get the grammar worked out. And we're going to try to reduce the number of irregular verbs. Germany, by the way, is fighting one out now. Um, The writers don't like some of the new changes that were made about 10 years ago that they're supposed to be phasing in. And so they're like, yeah, forget that. Um, uh, Italy has done it. Uh, France has tried to do it with, with varying degrees of success. Uh, China has done it repeatedly, trying to simplify their use of characters. English has never had this pressure on it. By the way, English is also not the official language I think of anywhere. It's not the official language of the United States, it's not the official language of England. It's just, it's just, it's just the language you use. So it doesn't, I mean, it's this weirdly offhanded approach to a world-spanning language, right? It just sort of is. Um, but if you look at these poems I, I have here, I think, to give you an idea of some of the problems that you run into. One of them is pronunciation, which is, of course, related to, to spelling. So um, it says, when the English tongue we speak, why is break not rhymed with freak? Will you tell me why it's true we, s- we say so, but likewise few? And the maker of the verse cannot rhyme his horse with worse. Beard is not the same as herd. cord is different from word, cow is cow, but low is low, shoe is never rhymed with foe. Think of hose, dose, and lose, and think of goose, and yet with choose. Think of comb, tomb, and bomb, dole, doll, and roll, or home, and some. Since pay is rhymed with say, why not paid with said I pray? Think of blood, food, and good. Mold is not pronounced like could. Wherefore, done, but gone and lone. Is there any reason known? To sum up all, it seems to me, sound and letters don't agree. Oh. <laughs> the reason sound and letters don't agree is because we have no standardized use of anything. There is, There never has been. Now, people have been trying. Webster, Daniel, this is what Daniel Webster was up to. And it's hilarious, some of the outputs of these attempts are so bad that that they sort of made things worse, right? Some of the crazy spelling we have was an attempt to standardize our spelling that simply made things more confusing. Um, Here's another one that goes along the same lines. We must polish the Polish furniture. He could lead if he would get the lead out. The farm used to produce produce. The dump was so full that it had to refuse more refuse. The soldier decided to desert in the desert. This was a good time to present the present a bass was painted on the head of the bass drum when shot at the dove dove into the bushes i did not object to the object the insurance was invalid for the invalid the bandage was wound round the wound there was a row among the oarsmen about how to row there was a row among the oarsmen about see it's so there was a row among the oarsmen about how to row They were too close to the door to close it. Now those are all, I mean, see, now some languages have a little bit of this. But what's happened is we've just been sucking things in from all, like from centuries and from languages. And there's never been any sort of attempt to make it orderly. That's why we still have a. A, a, a K in, in, in night, right? It's not spelled, pronounced knigget, even though it's spelled knigget, we say night. right? It, it, it should be knigget, right? I mean, clearly that word is knigget. The German, by the way, is beautifully regular. Lots of languages are beautifully regular. English is not at all regular. Uh, in fact, it's wildly, crazily inconsistent. But it's not just the spelling and pronunciation. I mean, it, it, just to have words that are spelled exactly the same, pronounced so differently, just seems uh, perverse. Um, but it's also things like a declination of, of, of verbs, right? So you're adding verb innings. And you would think that we, you, lots of languages, by the way, have irregular verbs. But so I, I asked this, so think about this. What is the past tense of thrive? <laughs> How many people say thrived? It be both. I mean, people say throve. It's both. It's optional. Make up your own ending, right? Feel free. So that's like, I don't know, it's like an optional irregular verb. It's potentially irregular if you like it <laughs> way. Most languages do not allow their, ir- they're very regular about their irregular verbs. We are very irregular about our irregular verbs. Uh, and But how many of you had to think about it? Because I was actually, the ponder, I was thinking, It's like I'm like, thrive, throve, throve? Have thriven? Is that that correct? Have thriven. Sure, I think we have, were we to have throve? Can I say that in the language? No no one has said that in English in like 500 years. But I think it's still correct. Were we to have throve? Wow. Yeah. Um, Another example is also our vocabulary. English has by far the largest vocabulary in the world. No language is even a distant second. We have more vocabulary than like four or five other languages put together. Chinese, French, German throw Spanish in there. We have more. I mean, why do we have such a big vocabulary? Well, a couple of reasons. One, what is the difference between a bloom, a blossom, and a flower? Answer, nothing. It's the same damn word, it really is. Bloom, blossom, flower. Why do we have three of them? Well, we took one from the Angles, one from the Saxons, and one from the French, who of course stole it from, the, from Latin. So bloom comes over early. This is sort of Old West German. Uh, from German, of course, blumen. right? Well, wow, that's not too tough to figure out today, same root. Blossom comes over a little bit later. Uh, with the Danes, the spear Danes brought us blossom, that's nice, and spears. Um, th- that would be the Vikings. Um, and then flower, fluid, French, right from, from, from the Latin. Bloom, blossom, flower. Why do we have three? We have this all, oh, what's the difference is between bake and roast? Well, it depends on which language you took it from. And so we make up all these crazy distinctions. You bake a cake, you bake a ham, you don't bake a steak, and you don't roast a cake. <laughs> I don't know how foreigners ever learn this damn language. I really don't. It's just not fair. Okay, I'm going to bake my steak. Oh no, no! You can barbecue it or, or, or particularly roast, fry it. No, you can't bake it. Why not? It's the same oven at the same temperature. Yes, well. Or flesh and meat, right? So the one I like is if you're reading a bad novel, you can say, "I felt her soft flesh." If you're reading a weird novel, you can say, I felt her soft meat. <laughs> In theory, this means exactly the same thing. In practice, I think it means you're feeling her lunch, right? <laughs> Which is a different novel altogether. <laughs> you know, uh, right? it's, it, how are you supposed to know this? We all know it, right? We all know that flesh and meat can't be used like that. No, 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 no. <laughs> Or or hair and fur, which I always like. Oh, you have lovely fur today. Um, Or we go to a beauty parlor. Notice the French generally, the Latin French generally sounds better. We like to use those. Beauty parlor rather than a make pretty room. Right? It's a perfectly good make pretty room is a beauty parlor, but beauty parlor. So you go to the make pretty room to make your fur shiny. (laughs) See? Oh, but that's wrong. Wrong. This is why it's fun to talk to foreigners, because you're like, oh, no, that's not how oh, that, nope. Okay. It's not, that's not going to fly, right? That not, is not, we do it. Um, and, and so, or, or, or what, the other one you can think is uh, babies drink milk, right? We've got that down. So women lactate. Waha. No, they make milk. No, we never say that. We never say, oh, young mothers make milk. We say, oh, they lactate. And so if you have a league of lactating mothers, we call it a lactation league. No, no, no. We call it a La leche league, because we just took, a, we, we took the Spanish word for milk, for God knows what reason. I have no idea why this is. But this is what they call it, right? They just said, let's, take, no, let's not use the Latin word, lactation. Let's not use the French word. We've got plenty of those. Let's just go out and get a Spanish word that's derived from the same damn Latin root anyway, and we'll use that. So I think mothers should make milk in a milk-making league for our babies, right? And even though babies drink milk, adults don't because they're lactose intolerant. (laughs) See? See how baffling this is? And lactose is just the word for milk, right? I mean, yeah, it's, it's bizarre. But of course we like to say lactose because that's the Latin. And this is the language When I talked about the influence of the language of science coming from the Latin and the Greek. It's immense. It's not tiny, it's immense. It's all. It influences our thinking, our writing, our vocabulary in so many ways, and it flows into the language. Uh, and it's taken on this sort of Aura of respectability, uh, and so if, if you you always know when someone's trying to bullshit you is because they use a whole bunch of Latin words strung together. That's almost always a sign. <laughs> Bureaucrats love this, right? So they you know uh, I can't think of they they come up with these bizarre, long-winded phrases with lots of Latin endings in them. He's like, oh, that sounds really good, right? Oh, the uh, the 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 person was defenestrated. Ooh. Sounds nice. thrown out a window, <laughs> right, and that's just, this is, this is, um, and, and so you, you have these weirdnesses of, um, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, but you have these weirdnesses in spelling, in orthography, how we present our spelling, how we spell, pronunciation, vocabulary, like I said, which is just ridiculously overfilled with language, words from science and Every, every, and by the way, also we accrete words from every language in the world, and we don't tend to change them at all. This is why we can't figure out how to spell ketchup. Because <laughs> I think it's like, a, it's like a Malay word, a Malonga word. So it's like, it's like one of the four words we've ever taken from this small island in Indonesia. Indi- <laughs> right? And It's are like, okay, well, how do you bring it in? Lots of other languages will bring words in, and they sort of change them and at least vaguely, remotely look like that. They- we don't. We're like, oh, ketchup, or catsup right. or whatever. We don't have to spell words we've had for 600 years. Let's bring it in, <laughs> spell it any way you like, right? So immensely diverse uh, s- uh, spelling, immensely diverse vocabulary from all kinds of languages, which is why we can't get the pronunciation right. It's because we just import them, and we tend to try and keep the, the, the pronunciation. We do this with, with Spanish all the time. So, so in the 70s, the great uh, Spanish golfer, uh, Chichi Rodriguez, right? And it should be pronounced chai chai Rodriguez, (laughs) Right? That should be Chai-Chai, but we say Chichi Rodriguez, right? So all of our sports announcers all of a sudden become sort of Spanish for a moment. And and we do this, we try to get the inflection and tone and sound of other languages correct. It's it's quite interesting. Most languages don't bother. They don't care. They're not trying to... We're like, oh, we took your word. We want to say it the way you said it, not the way we would say it. It's, it's an odd. It's an odd idea. It's part of the fact that it is all around the world, and we're always sucking vocabulary in from other places. Um, and so you have, again, so spelling's not regular, pronunciation is not regular, vocabulary is, and now even things like word order. So you know, our our standard word order is subject verb object. I enjoyed. Well, I enjoyed the movie. Okay, that's how I enjoyed the movie. Or the movie was enjoyable. Or I had enjoyment from the movie. <laughs> what? Or movies gave enjoyment to me. Well, it turns out you can construct almost any English sentence in any word order you like. This is very unusual for languages that don't match their tenses up. So in Latin, for instance, everything is, is, is uh, declined the same way. So you can mix the word orders up because you know what the subject is, you know what the object is, you know what the verb is, based on the endings. It's all right there in the ending. You don't, often you don't need a subject, So like vini vidi, Vici," The I came, I saw, I conquered is right there in, in the declension of, of the Latin word. So you don't even need the I. And so you can sort of play around with word order. But in languages that don't have that, they usually have a little more stable, a little more strict word order. In English, we're very subject-verb-object oriented, but if you don't want to do that, you don't have to. Again, we're not sure how to decline our verbs because they're crazy. We have irregular and they're really irregular. Um, we don't know how to use the vocabulary. And our punctuation is grossly unstandardized. I mean, really, as someone who has to teach this, I would like to say it's grossly unstandardized. A warning note, however, you do not put commas where you pause. I would just like to stomp that out at. If anyone ever tells you this, hit them. because they're trying to undermine Western civilization. You do not put a comma where you pause in speech because you don't use commas in speech, you use commas in writing.
1: <laughs> right. I mean, it's a couple
0: unrelated experiences. So don't do that. But there's all kinds of rules that are up for grabs. The primary rule with a comma is use it anywhere that it's necessary for clarity. So if you have a series of adjectives, you're supposed to go uh, the pretty young woman. So you're supposed to go with the pretty comma young woman. So that we mean a woman who is pretty and young not a woman who is particularly young, right? So a pretty young woman without the comma means one thing. A pretty young woman with the comma means another thing. But often, uh, Clive James was just in an article, he said, no, you don't use that comma. It just looks terrible on the page, and it sounds bad to the ear. You leave that out. So, Clive James, by the way, is a great writer. He, he knows from, from whence he speaks. Um, but we don't agree about it. There's no standard way to present dialogue in English. There's no standard way to present thought in English. There's no agreement on, like for instance, if you start a sentence with a prepositional phrase, before he went to work, comma, he drank his coffee. In theory, you're supposed to always have that comma. That's the first rule they'll teach you. The next rule they'll teach you is, well, if it's a short prepositional phrase, you might not need that comma. And if it's not necessary for clarity, well, just drop it all together. Well, what the hell kind of rule is that? (laughs) And if you ever tried to explain a non-count noun to someone, people know a non-count noun? So sugar, for instance, is a non-count noun. If you have a bag of sugar, you have a lot more sugar than if you had a single cube of sugar. You don't say, wow, I've got a bag of sugars. A bag of sugars would mean you had a bag in which there were several different varieties of sugar. So it's like sheep. One sheep, two sheep. What? That's stupid. You know, there are languages that decline for one, two, three, four, some of them even five. They have different endings. I don't know how many only go one sheep. Two sheep. So then you go, right, I've got this down. This is a very simple language. One dog, two dog. Oh, no. So you have to understand dogs are completely unlike sheep. And it's like, how exactly are dogs unlike sheep? Well, dogs chase sheep.
1: So you're like, okay. Okay.
0: Animals that are chased by dogs don't take the plural ending. <laughs> Got it. Right? Is that, I mean, what the hell? Is it how, I don't know. I don't know where the, how you're supposed to calculate. Deer, 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 sheep. Right? We've all had these problems when you try and write and you go, oh, what, what's going on? And then there's the whole like octopi thing, right? Where they just well, this is what happens when you import words wholesale from a foreign language, because octopuses sound stupid. And octopus, I know we'll make them non-count. Right? Why one octopus, two octopus, five octopus, an ocean full of octopus? Let's just do that. Oh no. It's octopuses, I believe is correct. It's syllabus, syllabuses, by the way. As a teacher, this is what, it sounds awful. You want to say syllabi because syllabuses sound stupid. It is, but let's make it non-count, because maybe dogs chase syllabuses. So it's just syllabus, syllabus, syllabus. Right? So, Like I said, how, so, um, and then you have the, the sort of things like, oh, uh, let's see, it's uh, he... She, it, they. What? He, she, it, they. Those are almost completely unrelated words. In fact, they are. They come from three different languages. We've borrowed our... G- I mean, that's a weird thing to you think. Those are going to be set. Those are... No, we'll come, um, two from Anglo-Saxon. Uh, they comes from... Oh, I can't remember. I think it... Did we get that from the from the... I forget now, i have to look up, I forgot, I forgot. But they come from different languages. Even, even our really central core elements of our language are, are, are all over the place. Um, and then, of course, you know, you just come all the way back to spelling, and you go, you know, I before E, except after C, accepted words that rhyme with ancient. And it just goes on and on. And it actually turns out that is not a rule. There are more exceptions than there are words that follow this rule. <laughs> Um, And you can look online, there's great stories about people using their spell check and you can spell anything right in English. So you can write whole sentences that are misspelled that your spell checker will never never capture. Or my personal favorite, one of my personal favorites is sent, sent, and sent. C-E-N-T, sent, S-E-N-T, sent, S-E-N-T, sent. I mean, so it is uh, morphologically in declension, uh, in tenses, in spelling, in pronunciation, in vocabulary, just weird. I mean, it's, just, it, it's really off the charts. Nicholas Ostler, whose book, um, Empire of the Words, who, who, uh, who I use as sort of a guide for some of this, um, says that the closest thing to learning um, English as a child, how many people, I should ask this, how many people were, were tried to teach English with phonics, right, you should learn to speak phonics. Okay, everybody else just memorize it, so, You know, see and speak kind of thing, right? That's the, the memory. So mem- if you're memorizing words individually, because you can't use phonics for the very reasons we've been exploring. It actually doesn't work in the English language. You learn just enough so you'll never spell anything correctly for the rest of your life. (laughs) Uh, Because you'll want to go back to those rules, all of which are obviously hopeless. Um, He says it's very much like Chinese because what you're actually learning is a single set representation that has no necessary correlation in sound with anything else, right? It is sent, sent, sent. Not kent, sent, or skint, (laughs) which is what it should be. How about this one? How many vowels are there? A, E, I, O, U, Y. How many people got W? Yeah, and sometimes W. See, not, even, not, all, not all of you got W, did you? See, you got ripped off. They, they stole a vowel from you. That, see, we don't, we, we don't even know what our vowels are. Uh, y and W are, well, they're called the diphthong vowels. It's sort of the, when you slur things together, um, and, and used as a, as a diphthong, then it's, that's why it's sometime a vowel or a partial vowel. Um, And lots of these are old English words that are just coming directly. This is what you're getting when you look at uh, Beowulf on the preceding page, right? If you want to know how to say those, you have to use diphthongs to say them, and that's how Y and W get translated into language as sometimes vowels and sometimes consonants. Not only that, sometimes people think that, uh, like, uh, coom, C-W-M, and mar, M-W-R, uh, w is operating as a vowel there, right? But it's actually not. It's because we've just imported those rules wholesale, those words wholesale, and we never changed them. And so they come from a language that doesn't have to have a vowel. So coom, C-W-M, which means sort of a glade, a foresty, gladey thing, uh, and mar, which is sort of a swamp. Um, so like the College of Bryn Mawr, It means swamp, right? I I always think they're not going to change their name anytime soon. Uh, But but, but that usage is, that actually is not a vowel usage. It weirdly throws you off. But it's just us importing a word wholesale without applying any of our pronunciation or spelling rules to it and just sticking it in the language. So if you're playing Scrabble, you can actually spell a word C-W-M. Um, which is, again, it's a very strange. And it's pronounced C-O-O-N, kum, kum, sort of, And so, how is it that this big wreck of a language actually functions all over the world? And I, this is a question, right, this is, nobody has the answer. I think there's a couple of possibilities. And one is, um, there is a core of rules that you can follow. You can have good style, but it's loose, which means it's very forgiving. Right, it, 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 we don't mind people making errors because we make errors, right? I think this is one of the rules of English, be nice to other people because we don't know how to use it either. Uh, you know, this, and, and I think there is this element of, you know, you just do the best you can um, and, and, and go with it. And at its roots, the subject, verb, object, English sentence is very simple. And there's lots of very simple vocabulary. So you can do pretty well with pretty limited English. But it turns out that just expands into this infinite continent of words that no one ever uses. What's the difference between effervescent, evanescent, and effervescent? I always lose that. I'm like, I forget. There is, in theory, a difference, but I, I always—I I just can't ever remember them. I have to look them up every time because they're just so close. Um, And and so you can go way out there. Uh, This is where Henry James wrote. This is why Henry James at times is hard to read. Is because he was just like playing the entire organ of the English language. Suspended sentence structures, lots and lots of vocabulary that you're never going to see again as long as you live, Um, you know, all folded in. But you can do that if you want. Or you can write like Hemingway. I saw a rock. (laughs) Right? There, in, 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 hills, in, in Hills Like White Elephants, he says, the woman entered the room. And I think it's the only description he ever offers of her. There, right, you don't need to be Jamesy. You can write very simple like Hemingway. You can write hugely complex uh, like someone like Henry James. And it all turns out to be pretty much functional English. So I think this is one. Another aspect is do not underestimate the significance of being the, the, the language of economics and science. This is hugely important. If you want to be a mathematician in Japan or in Caracas or in anywhere, it doesn't matter, you, at some point you have to learn enough English to be able to publish your paper in journals that have English. Because if you don't, you're simply, essentially you're marginalizing your career or you have to get someone to translate for you. It's, it, you just have to do it. We don't notice it because, of course, we already speak English. If you want to transact business internationally, if you don't know Chinese, you damn well better learn English. I mean, because it, it, it is the de facto language of international business. International trade associations all have, not all, vast majority of them have English as their primary language. And you, Because notice, you need a primary language. And it's not this imposition. We think of it you know, sort of has this imperial overtones. No, you want a lingua franca, because no one wants to be at a meeting where 11 different languages are spoken. This is called the UN. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't work that well. Uh, you want to have a language that everybody can at least rudimentarily work with, communicate in. It just it eases everything. It makes everything much easier, simpler, uh, faster. Um, and, and again, the, you know, science is everywhere. I mean, so it, even, even in places where they hate us immensely and everything American is bad. You know, while, while I ran in, in, during the height of the sort of, um, you know, anti-American protests, uh, their scientists are still learning English because you just have to. If you want to steal nuclear secrets, you need English,
1: (laughs) right? It's
0: sort of of a very functional issue. It's not complicated. Uh, um, And so this is is a continued driver of the spread of English. Um, And so it is this odd world. And so along with it, of course, the cultural heritage of of English spreads and takes on a a huge importance. Um, And so, you know, if you look at an author like, of course, famously Shakespeare, I mean, Shakespeare is famous all over the world. He's not just famous in America. Most playwrights are famous in their own country. Maybe a few have been translated around the world. I I can't think of anybody who's made the impact uh, that Shakespeare has made all over the world. Um, He would not have made that impact if he had written in, uh, um, you know, uh, Basque, right? (laughs) He would have been as great a playwright in some ways, but in other ways, you know can't get that out, it's not gonna be able to spread without that impetus, impetus behind it. And so in some ways, I think we tend to overvalue the quality of English language literature because it does have this global reach. Um, often I think it's not really as good as we think it is, I hate to say that, but you know other languages have really good writers, poets, artists, uh, 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 playwrights, and we tend to downplay that importance because if they're really good, They would have written in English, (laughs) um, which is the language of good writing. We all know this. Um, is is one problem that we have. Again, this is why I always think it's good to know more than one language, simply so to experience other writers, other ideas in their own language, something that you can't do in translation. You can't know every language. Um, But so we're in this strange world, our world, the world which, if you're an English language speaker, you're fortunate, because this gives you a huge advantage. that our language, and with it, many of our cultural assumptions and norms just flow out around the world effortlessly. Um, Our our ideals, our concepts, our literature, our TV shows, our movies are on the march. Um, I always think it's hilarious when you'll occasionally get, um, the the commercial, I guess, during the Super Bowl caught some people off guard when they had the uh, uh, national anthem sung in a whole bunch of different languages. And I thought, ah, oh, see, we hate it when this happens to us, <laughs> right? But the notion that we've been sending out stuff in English to the rest of the world, everybody mouthing the ling- language to, 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 to rock songs when they had no idea, they don't know any English words, but they can mouth entire collections of American pop tunes. Um, see, that's we're not used to it. Some of it is flowing back now, the incredible popularity of Japanese culture, Spanish and Spanish uh, language... Um, music, in particular, and film, is, is very popular in the United States, and so we're getting that influence a lot. But still, English and powerful and dominant. Um, my next lecture is all going to be on the future of languages, but I do want to stop for a moment and say a, a warning note. Uh, this doesn't mean English is going to be dominant forever. The history of languages is pretty clear. I mean, if you had asked an Akkadian, wow, look how widespread Akkadian is. They're like, well, yeah, it's a lingua franca. If you don't know Akkadian, you're no one. Right? Of course, we, you know, we've got form writing, we've got all power, we're, we're, you know, we're good to go. Trade posts all over the place. Yeah, that didn't work out so well. Right? Akkadian <laughs> is not spoken that commonly today. Um, uh, Latin obviously fell on somewhat hard times. Uh, you know, there's a, many of these world-spanning languages. Chinese, oddly, China is sort of an empire in itself, but outside of the bounds of Imperial China, Chinese has spread more or less not at all. I mean, it's had a very limited life uh, in really spreading. Now this may change. This may may dramatically alter if China really says, you know what, we'd like to have Chinese speakers all over the world and really go that direction, it may. But historically, every China's done that a little bit and then they've gone, oh, forget that in some cases, kill all those people who speak Chinese away, and, and you know, everybody who speaks China should live in China. This has been sort of an ebb and flow. Um, but for now, um, if you get on an airplane anywhere in the world, your pilots speak English. This is required by law. This sort of thing is hugely influential. If, uh, you know if we do like world trade organizations, right? We sign all these international treaties, Those will be in a couple of languages, but it's always in English. So if if you're a small country, Mali, Peru, that's a fair-sized country, but not a huge country, you have to have a lawyer who knows international law and English because the, 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 the chances that the treaties will be signed and written in your language might be very small. And the less popular your language is, the less likely it is that it's going to be translated into that. So I believe the World Trade Organization Treaty is in seven languages. Right? That's not very helpful for the other you know, 20 or 30 major languages in the world. It means you're signing a treaty in a language that's not yours. The history of that is not real good. Uh, always have the treaty in your language. That would be my recommendation. And, and so this is a huge impetus for doing this. So if you go to any university in America, major university, minor university, you'll see a large foreign student contingent. And they're over here often subsidized by their governments for specifically this purpose. You need to learn law, but you need to learn law in English. They have plenty of good law schools in their home country, but you need to learn law in English. You need to learn physics, but you need to learn physics in English. And this is true, like I said, in, in the entire English speaking world. And so we're kind of at the height the greatest international influence that any language has achieved in history is English today. Uh, but where that takes us, which nobody knows, because the future is uncertain, particularly with such a strange amalgamum uh, as English. So thank you very much, English language. <laughs>